Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw cares away. Christmas is here, bringing good cheer to young and old, meek and the bold. Ding dong, ding dong. Ding dong, ding dong, that is their song, with joyful Seems to hear words of good cheer from everywhere, filling the air. Oh, how they pound, raising the sound. Oh, hell and tell, telling their tale. Gaily they ring while people sing songs of good cheer. Christmas is here. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Welcome back to the second part of our Tales from the Phantom Galaxy episode dedicated to ghost stories for winter and Christmas. You find the first part, it's already up. It has a couple of classic ghost stories narrated by a couple of different voices. And this installment is going to cover three more stories, two really good classic ghost stories. And we're going to begin with a brand new story written by a podcaster I've just recently become aware of, Macabre Marvel, who is over at the Nightmare Emporium podcast. Again, that's Nightmare Emporium. It's a very good narrative podcast that has a new horror story every, uh, just about every week, I believe, every week or so. They're spooky short stories, little bite-sized pieces. They're really good. Again, you can find her there at the Nightmare Emporium. The story that she recorded for us is also available on their podcast. Is about a German folklore character. While not the most popular one, one has certainly gained in popularity, I would say, over the last five years or so. And he's not the one that boys and girls are necessarily the most excited to see on Christmas morning. So here's Macabre Marvel with a Krampus story. Welcome to the Nightmare Emporium. Here we take a deep dive into some grisly tales that are bound to make you lose your head. Now, let's check in with our host, the macabre Marvel herself, to see what she has in store for us this week. I am the Macabre Marvel, host of the Nightmare Emporium, here to regale you with a short tale of my favorite Christmas folklore, the legend of Krampus, and what happens to naughty children who don't appreciate what they have. You can find me wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search the Nightmare Emporium. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter at Macabre Marvel. Now, please, sit back, 
relax, and enjoy the spine-tingling story I have in store for you tonight. Stay spooky. Timothy Wigglesforth wigs to his friends. Timmy, to his overly devoted mother, was, by his own admission, a kind of good kid. Sure, he had his fair share of schoolyard fights, had occasionally stolen some candy from the corner store, and once hit his sister just because she was annoying him. But, as he liked to reason with himself, what teenage boy wouldn't have been annoyed by a little sister who still thought dolls were fun? It wasn't like he was a bad person. He wasn't going to wind up in jail just for being a little mean to his sister. What Timothy didn't know was that he was going to wind up someplace way worse. Timothy had grown up hearing tales of Krampus, the supposed evil twin of Santa, that comes for naughty children in the middle of the night, but he never took it seriously. A half-goat, half-demon entity? I mean, who would believe that? Timothy scoffed at even the idea. Santa was one thing, and hard enough to believe in, but an evil being punishing kids? Nah, that's just something your parents would warn you about, to keep you in line. His mother had warned him too, saying that he needed to start acting right, or Krampus would come for him. But he brushed it off. He wasn't that bad a kid. As Christmas approached, Timothy got more and more excited about all of the new toys, electronics, and money that he was going to get for Christmas that year. In fact, he was so excited he could barely sleep. On Christmas Eve night, his mother and father were leaving for his father's company Christmas party, but before they left, they told Timmy he was in charge for the evening, but that he and his sister needed to go to bed early, reminding them, Santa will be here soon and you mustn't be awake. Timothy wasn't sure he believed all the nonsense about a jolly fat man squeezing down the chimney to drop off presents. But hey, anything for some new tech. He wanted the newest gaming system, a smart TV, and a VR system, and he knew he deserved every bit of it. After all, he was a good kid. It didn't matter to him that his mother had gotten laid off earlier that year, and that his dad was working extra hours at the factory just to try and make ends meet. He knew he deserved the best, and he better get it. Didn't his parents care about him at all? It didn't seem to matter to him that he had new clothes every few months, thanks to those growth spurts, and that they always had a full fridge, plenty of snacks, a warm house, and a perfectly good computer and gaming system already. He deserved the best. Timothy's parents left, and just like he was supposed to, he put his sister to bed on time, but knowing what was best for himself, he stayed up late. He ate all the Christmas cookies he was meant to leave out for Santa. He watched all those late night TV programs his mother had forbidden. And he even left his sister alone while he ran down to the corner store to grab more candy. In fact, he hadn't been home long when he heard a loud bang. It didn't bother him though. He was having a sugar crash from all of the candy and cookies 
and just wanted to go to bed. Not five minutes later, however, there was another loud bang from the living room. That's when Timothy knew something was wrong. And he was the oldest. He had to go check it out. Maybe his parents had gotten home. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Nothing was wrong. Nothing to worry about. Just his parents. He would go down and say hi, prove that he was a grown-up and could stay up late, and that nothing scared him. Timothy crept downstairs. As he approached the family room, with its merrily decorated Christmas tree and fireplace, now cold, but with stockings hung with care, he knew it wasn't his parents he had heard. There was a crack around the side of the fireplace, a crack that hadn't been there when he'd gone up to bed shortly before. Another crack appeared, along with loud rustling from the chimney. Something was coming, and Timothy knew it was nothing good. It was then that Timothy suddenly heard his mother's voice in his head, telling him the story of Krampus, who came to steal away naughty children. And just as he had that thought, a pair of black hooves with brown fur landed in the hearth. Before Timothy could even scream, a large figure, easily seven feet tall, with coarse brown hair covering his body, a red face with the horns of a goat, and a large forked tongue was standing before him. Timothy could hear the chains that encompassed his body all the way down to his cloven feet clanking. He could smell the sulfur that seemed to pour off the demon's body, and he slowly noticed the birch branch and large burlap sack the creature held in one hand. Hello, Timothy, the creature proclaimed. I guess you've heard of me. He held out his burlap sack. Are you ready for the present you so rightly deserve? Timothy's parents arrived home just a few minutes later. Noticing nothing off about their home, except maybe a slightly odd smell, they put out the presents, peeked in on their daughter, before getting ready for bed themselves. The next morning, they celebrated Christmas in all its glory, giving their daughter new clothes, some books, and as a special surprise, the doll that she had been wanting. She thanked her parents genuinely for the gifts she had been given, for she knew how hard they worked for them. The whole time, however, she had a nagging feeling she was forgetting something. Someone, maybe? There was a name. Timmy? She meant to ask her parents, but it just didn't seem important. All she knew was that she was grateful, and the story that her mother would tell her of Krampus hung around in the back of her mind. She was the only child. She needed to be good. Or Krampus would come for her. Well, well, wasn't that just a scream? Until next time, our fiendish friends. Remember to stay scared, and sometimes it's more than just a story. And that was a Krampus story by Macabre Marvel. You can find her work over at the Nightmare Emporium. And we're hoping in the new year to actually have Macabre Marvel on the show, on the Phantom Galaxy, to discuss horror fiction and stories. And now we're going to turn to a classic 
ghost story set at Christmas time that honestly for me was a story I read when I was younger and and ended up being one of those stories that really affected me in terms of of nightmares. Uh, I remember having nightmares about a specific element that happens in this story involving a piece of luggage, essentially, as, as funny as that may sound. But this is Algernon Blackwood's The Kit Bag. And it's read for us by Dave Roy, author of the Great Fright North podcast. And if you listen to our last Tales from the Phantom Galaxy, you'll remember Dave is the one who read that really great rendition of a tropical horror uh, with the sea monster battle. Here we have another conflict with the supernatural and a battle of sorts in a very, very different way. So here's Dave with The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. Hello, Phantom Galaxy and all its listeners. This is Dave Roy from the Great Fright North podcast. I wanted to wish everybody a happy holiday. Whether you celebrate Festivus or Life Day, Christmas or Kwanzaa, I hope you have as amazing a time as I'm going to have. I was delighted to be asked back to share some more spooky stories with you for another holiday. I had so much fun at Halloween and couldn't wait to do this again. So looking around for something to share with you this holiday, I didn't realize what a rich and actually very old history spooky tales have with Christmas. I mean, I know a Christmas carol, and really, I guess that's it. I, I, I didn't think too much of it, but in looking for something to share with you tonight, it seems like there's a, a ton of Christmas or holiday horror stories. So I went with something that I had never heard of. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. So tonight I'm going to read The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood When the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC, and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It's what we expected, I think, said the barrister, without emotion, and personally I am glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the face felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He had sat in the court for ten days watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Oh, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26 with a delicate face like a girl's. I can catch the morning boat now, he said. But that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. It's positively haunted me. The white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead is a thing I shall never forget, and the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that... Oh, don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. He, he paused a moment. Now go he added presently, and enjoy your holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back, and don't break your neck skiing. 
Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door, he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within thirty hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to the Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old, gaunt houses, in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and a few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares. And when he reached his rooms, he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall, he met his landlady, shading a candle from the drafts with her thin hand. This come by a man from Mr. Wilbram's, sir. She pointed to what was evidently the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Miss Monks. I'll leave an address for letters. And I hope you'll have a Merry Christmas, sir, she said, in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits. And better weather than this. I hope so, too, he replied, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet volleying against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack... Such as my packing is, he laughed to himself and set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snowy mountains so vividly before him and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas bag, sack-shaped with holes round the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, sweaters, snow boots, ear caps, and then on the top of these he piled his woolen shirts and underwear, thick socks, puttees, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of these kit bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the center of the shifting room, where he had come to fetch some string. It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with the pity of the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate, whilst he was skimming over snowy slopes in the bright sunshine, and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Oh, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen, and as he did so, he heard someone coming up the stairs. He stood still a moment in the landing to listen. Hmm. It was Miss Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the last post. But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down. And he came to the conclusion they were too heavy to be those of his bilious landlady. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. 
The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full, and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was old and dirty. The canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one or one that his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought, and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Miss Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible, and further, that the sounds had been coming lately distinctly nearer? For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirt, he noticed that the top of the knit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and a forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain, for he could not tell exactly, looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously like the face of John Turk the murderer. He laughed, and went into the front room where the light was stronger. That horrid case has got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. This time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog, then he called over to the banisters, to Miss Monks, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house, and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind, after all, although it seemed so very real and close. I thought... He went back to his packing. It was, by this time, getting towards midnight. He drank his coffee and lit another pipe, the last, before turning in. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion, and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past, the causes of his feelings had been gathered slowly in his mind, but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. 
He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person. Another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of a conscience. Almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet though he searched vigorously and honestly, in his mind he knew he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of his growing uneasiness. And it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. <laughs> Mountain air will cure all that, he added, still speaking to himself. And that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during his brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard he saw out of the corner of his eye, the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs, a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banister and the face peering up towards the landing, and at the same moment he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be, and what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then after a few seconds hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase, where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy, but at the same time a stealthy footstep the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leaped the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross, and beyond that again lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. By Jove, that was someone on the stairs then, he murmured his flesh crawling all over. And whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom? His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room, where a few seconds before the steps had disappeared. Is that you, Mrs. Monks? He called aloud as he went, and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure other than his own. "'Who's there?' he called again in a voice unnecessarily loud and that only just held firm. "'What do you want here?' The curtains swayed very slightly, and as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat, and yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with such a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze." He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the knit bag. Odd, he thought. That is not where I left it. 
A few moments before, it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of a small gunshot, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. There's no one here at any rate, that's quite clear, he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And to my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks, and steps I heard the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged nearer to the door. What happened afterwards that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear, and was perceived by a mind that had not the full and proper control thereof of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he had saw and heard afterwards, from the moving of the kit bag to, well, to the other things this story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the Old Bailey came strongly to light and develop themselves into the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life again, just when the mind least desires them, in the silent watches of the night on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision, the white skin, the evil eyes, the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind, unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired. No doubt at this rate I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural, and the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight as though someone were crouching behind to hide. And at the same moment a sound like a long-drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him, 
between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost hysterical impulse to scream. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, finding his voice. But though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it, would, where it had fallen over, being only three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that, round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging in it, swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers. But even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a mind keyed up by vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness. For there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk the murderer. Not three feet from him, the man stood. The fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead. The whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel, as vivid as he had seen him the day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dock, cynical and callous under the very shadow of the gallows. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stench conditioning of the bulging sides, he remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly dismembered fragments forced within with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced as evidence. It all came back to him clear as day. Very softly and stealthily his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, 
but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into the words, It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying, stiff and bruised, on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind and he promptly fainted again. When he woke up the second time, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal grey, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamour woke him. He recognised Mrs. Monk's voice, loud and voluble. "'What? You ain't been to bed, sir. Are you ill? Or has anything happened, and there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet?' "'Who is it?' he stammered. "'I'm, I'm all right, thanks. I fell asleep in my chair, I suppose.' "'Someone from Mr. Wilbram's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad, and I told him.' "'Show him up, please, at once,' said Johnson, whose head was whirling and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made, and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not gone to you. Oh, said Johnson stupidly. And he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir. I'm afraid, the man continued, with without the ghost of an expression on his face, the one John Turk packed the dead body in. Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one, as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. At last he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me. Just empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd maybe like to know what's happened. Yes? John Turk killed himself last night with poison, immediately on getting his release, and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying he'd be much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered, in the old kit bag. What time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder says. Well, that's my story. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and again, have a super happy holiday. Dave, thank you for that great reading. The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood is probably one of my favorite 
Christmas ghost stories. It's a little more fearsome than some of the others, I think, in some ways. You can also see its influence on horror fiction. You could tell that Blackwood was pulling from things that already existed and adding a few elements and tropes that would sort of stick later on. I particularly like the way he makes the kit bag itself a very sort of entity, and, and the idea of it shuffling and banging across the floor uh, evokes a lot of different things later on. Just really great work all around. And now we're going to move on to a ghost story that in my mind is probably one of my favorite or most familiar ghost stories that I learned about maybe in the last 15 years or so. So, of course, you've got A Christmas Carol and many of the M.R. James stories, but this one involves a holiday party and what happens or happened at a specific holiday party involving Christmas games. And this story is read by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel, and it is Smee by A.M. Burridge. Hello, everybody. This is Bill Van Vagel. And I'm about to read you this story, Smee, by A.M. Burridge. No, said Jackson with a depreciatory smile. I'm sorry. I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me. But I'm not playing any game of hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve. We had dined well. It was the season for childish games. We were all in the mood for playing them. All that is, except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was an almost unanimous approval. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile was softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. Why not, someone asked. He hesitated for a moment before replying, I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped, and landed at the bottom of the stairs. She broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious. Mrs. Fernley said, How terrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said, but I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment, then he said, I wonder if any of us have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide-and-seek. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide-and-seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. You turn out the lights and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee. But of course, they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee! The others answer, Smee, and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until 
all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about. And she was there, the girl who broke... No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us playing the game, and there were only 12 people in the house, and I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me. But I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to pay my forfeit at once. We all stared at him. His words did not make sense at all. Tim Vooch was the kindest man in the world. He smiled at all of us. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson. You can tell it to us instead of playing a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson, and here is the story. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house and lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well... I went down for that Christmas. Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said, hello, to everyone I knew, and Violet Sangston introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go in to dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of a tall dark-haired, handsome girl whom I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look friendly at all, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were 12 of us, including the Sangston themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their 17-year-old son Reggie was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us all the rules of the game, just as I've described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all. If you are going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. It was about 10 years ago before we came here. There was a party and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, 
It was the door that led back to the stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started to play the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went round making sure all the lights were off except the ones in the servants' rooms and in the sitting rooms where we were. We then prepared 12 sheets of paper. Eleven of them were blank and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up. Then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it to, had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, someone blew a whistle and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee! 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 After a while, when the noises died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee, after a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer, so Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we, he remarked. He lit a match, looked up at the staircase, and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as twelve, then he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to be counted twice by yourself. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course there were twelve of us. Jack laughed, well, he said. I was sure I counted thirteen twice. From half the way up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't. But I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only 12 of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were 12 people and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to the bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We went into the breakfast room. What's the matter, I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. 
I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but I suddenly had a strange cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch, and there was nobody there. Now I am sure I touched a hand, and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagined that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. Together, we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me. Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined that he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever. But it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first I stayed with the others, but for several minutes no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeding my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with deep window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in the corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Aha, I thought. I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arms. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I could see the woman sitting in the corner of the window sill. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, What's your name? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came, Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one. And that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was, sitting beside me at the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the person or persons who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she is one of those cold, clever girls who has a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me, and she is using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed very likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her. 
but now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing. I remember touching her arm, and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then I heard late footsteps in the passage. Somebody on the other side of the curtains brushed against my knee. The curtain moved to one side, and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee? whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course she received no answer. She came down and sat down beside me, and at once I felt much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? she whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on the other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony. We'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I'd like to play a nice, quiet game, all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player. Somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I was feeling much better. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a while, we heard the sound of feet, and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello! Hello! Is anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You both got forfeits. We've been all waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't? You mean I was Smee this whole time? But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Miss Gorman. The curtain was pulled back and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once. Then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick and the world seemed to be going round and around. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman in a trembling voice. And I don't think anyone could leave the window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Someone had been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room and I was very glad. Sometime later, Jack Sankson wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me. Soon he told me the reason. Tony, he said, I suppose you are in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business. But please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It was very rude of you, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there. Somebody who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Miss who, he breathed. Brenda Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago.
What a simple yet creepy story. And honestly, I love it just for the fact that it presents that game of Smee, which I had never encountered anywhere else except in this story. It's a really fun tale that you can also share with younger fans of creepy stories without expecting it to give them excessive nightmares, I think. So that wraps up our show for tonight. I just want to say thank you for listening to Tales from the Phantom Galaxy. We'll be back next time with a regular Phantom Galaxy episode, and we have a lot of great plans for the new year with a lot of different concepts that we're going to be doing. And we are hoping to do one of these a month. They will not be as long as they've previously been. We'll probably feature one or two stories. And we are looking to have on both authors and narrators to share a little bit more in between the tales. So you can look forward to that. Again, I just want to take a moment uh, here at the holidays to thank everyone who's listened, all the fans out there. I want to thank you, too, to the podcasting community, people like Bill Van Vagel, who's been a wonderful co-host. I'm so thankful for him. We are intending to put out one more episode before the new year, and there we'll talk a little bit more just about the journey of Phantom Galaxy and all the people that have really helped support it this year. But for now, everyone, just have a wonderful and happy holidays. And again, look out behind you. (laughs) 